So I want to invite Jeremy Lair, who is the CEO of Circle, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Circle, and to Micah Tilleman, who leads global policy for Andreessen Horowitz, to the stage. If we have a shot as a species to bend the arc of Moore's law in the favor of humanity, it's in no small measure because of these two. So I would very much encourage you to pay close attention. The issues that we have at hand, the emergence of a technology that can enshrine ownership on the internet, from a world in which we were privatizing gains and socializing losses to a world in which we could flip that script on its head that is upon us, this is one of the most important policy conversations we have. It has everything to do with national security, national competitiveness, and uploading a dollar onto the internet. That very experience you had when you took your CDs and you turned them into MP3s and you could now control your own music. Imagine if you could do that with your money, your votes, your value, your identity. The Web3 conversation we're about to have with these two gentlemen is exactly that nexus. So thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. I didn't say who I was. I'm Circle's Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy. And I'm going to exit stage left and invite these two gentlemen to the stage. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's great to have this conversation. My great pleasure to be here. And what a crew. And we always knew Circle had superpowers, but arranging the weather is uh, a step up even for you guys. It, it took some planning. Clearly. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. As noted, you know, this is really a conversation that we're having, and we're going to share this conversation with the internet, uh, hopefully in a couple of days, in a few days. But it's, it's a real treat to have that conversation here uh, tonight with all of you as well. I want to kind of kick things off. There's so many topics that I think we can touch on and talk about here. But maybe to kind of kick things off, I think there's a need to kind of zoom out a little bit. And, you know, so much of the, of the dialogue in this area, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of confusion. And frankly, there's just an enormous surface area of things that are happening. And so that's challenging for people. But I want to come back kind of to some basics. And, and it's actually, it's rooted in some of the things that we identified over eight years ago when we started Circle, which was this idea that blockchains, this sort of public internet infrastructure, that, that blockchains in some ways represented a new infrastructure layer of the internet. And, you know, back eight years ago, you know, it was, it was hard to see that because there was really just Bitcoin. But if you know, I'm a technologist by background, and when I looked at it, I sort of said, you know, this is a the genie's out of the bottle on an on an architecture. And you know, I had come from this the world of of the internet of software, the internet of media, the internet of communications. And when I saw public blockchains, I thought this is a missing layer of the internet, and there could be an incredible amount built on it. And I think so much of the policy dialogue so much of the media attention, it's focused on things like the price of Bitcoin or, you know, so, so many other things. But I feel like, you know, the Web3 thesis, and by the way, for people who aren't familiar with Web3, that concept, that didn't come out of nowhere like this year. It's, it's a nomenclature that has been actually in this, in the technical communities working on this space since 2014, since uh, really the white paper behind Ethereum, which was a blockchain infrastructure, a kind of new infrastructure layer idea. But this idea that we're upgrading the internet's infrastructure, it's a central thesis for Andreessen Horowitz, but it's not just about a venture firm's thesis, it's, it's sort of happening, right? So maybe you could kick off, just talk about 
that core infrastructure thesis, and, and, and I'm sure we can go back and forth on this a bit as well. Absolutely. And you know, I think if you go to the beginning of the internet, if you go to the very early days, one of my bosses, a guy named Mark Andreessen, was uh, an originator of the very first web browser, something called Mosaic. And he and many of his colleagues at the time worked with open protocols and open source code. There was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of dynamism. But eventually, as we moved into the 2000s, you saw a shift in the business model. And that was really because we didn't have mechanisms available to monetize and support the experimentation that was going on in that Web 1 world. There was not a clear mechanism available to support the long-term infrastructure layer, to use your terminology, that was going to be necessary to power a society-wide, a population-scale series of platforms. And so that's when you saw the emergence of Web 2. And the Web 2 platforms, the big legacy platforms that we all use every day, have done a lot of important things. They've made a lot of important contributions to society. But by virtue of having created an advertising-based model, we've also seen a lot of problems arise from this. And we are now stuck in a rut where... We're really ha uh, dealing with two dominant technology paradigms in the world. One is big tech, where we give up our information, and that information is then used to shape and manipulate behavior for commercial purposes. And then we see in China the emergence of another paradigm, where information is consolidated by state actors and used to manipulate behavior for political purposes. Both of those paradigms are highly problematic, and neither one of them is really compatible with a healthy open society. And so what we see in Web3, to your point, Jeremy, is the genesis of a new mechanism for supporting open protocols and open platforms on the internet that will give communities greater ownership of the platforms they use, communities greater governance rights uh, in the platforms that they use, and also help democratize access to opportunity in a way that we just haven't been able to with Web2, where most of the gains have gone to a handful of individuals at the top of those platforms. So it is as profound and as exciting as any evolution that's occurred in the history of the internet. And it is really a new form of computing, as, as you were alluding to, and one that we should take really seriously if we want to win the 21st century as a country. I want to ladder off that. So one of the themes in tonight's discussion is, is sort of national economic competitiveness. And, um, you know, for the last several days, I've been meeting with a lot of folks here on the Hill and throughout government. And I think one of the things that's been resonating is the beginning of an understanding that these blockchain infrastructures are this new infrastructure layer of the internet. They enshrine values that are, have historically been really important in Western liberal market democracies, openness, free competition, uh, decentralization, distributing power. These are kind of tenets of classical liberalism. The internet has some of those tenets built into its DNA. And now we're seeing this infrastructure layer that, you know, as I describe it, public blockchain infrastructures are kind of a new operating system layer for the internet. And they literally are operating systems, but they're not controlled and and centralized like an Amazon Web Services or something an individual corporation has, but they're, they're dispersed and allow you to build applications with tamper-resistant data, with you know, transactions that are, are secure and final and the ability to actually put 
you know, business logic on the internet that can intermediate between unknown counterparties, something that was just impossible before. So there's this infrastructure layer. And I think the realization is that, you know, if Western society wants to win in whatever that means, if it wants to continue to, to build, winning in this infrastructure space is actually really, really critical. And the answer can't be, how do we out China China by trying to centralize and build these things entirely ourselves? And so I think this isn't just a discussion about how do you treat crypto assets? What's, you know, are these things securities or commodities? Or what do you do about stablecoins? We're going to talk about all those topics and DeFi and other things. But starting on this first principle that this is a, a critical infrastructure. It's as important as the internet's original infrastructure. And, you know, there needs to be a policy response that is about ensuring that we see that emerge. And so less about risks. The risks are important. We'll talk about that. More about opportunity. And I guess turning it back to you, from a policy perspective, what do you think that means? What are the, the kind of highest order priorities as you think about national economic competitiveness, infrastructure competitiveness from a U.S. policy perspective, what should members of Congress be thinking about as they now deal with this as a live policy issue? Well, if we jump into the hot tub time machine together and go back to 1997 during the early days of the internet, uh, it's easy to forget that we've had this conversation before. Uh, and there was a big debate that I'm sure you remember and many in this room will, will recall, where the FCC really wanted to regulate the internet. And they wanted You needed an FCC license to build a website. Exactly. Kind of like in China. Exactly. And we almost went that route. And it's worth thinking about how the world would be different had we gone that route, about the trillions of dollars of value that would not have been created had we gone that route. And at that time, the Clinton administration put together the Ira Magazine report where they looked at the landscape and they said, we know there's some, some risks, we need to manage those risks, but we also think the opportunity here is sufficiently expansive that we need to create space for innovation. And that 1997 report provided the groundwork, provided the, the bedrock principles on which the last generation of the internet has been constructed. We have learned an immense amount since then. And so I think it's critical for all of us to take stock of that. We can do better now than we did in 1997 because we know a lot of things we didn't know in 1997. But the opportunity is of commensurate scale. And you know, when I go to China, as I have, and have sat down with provincial governors and members of their cabinet and the justice of their Supreme Court, they can all go five layers deep on this technology, and they can tell you with extraordinary precision how they're going to use it, not only to, in an abstract sense, but how they're going to use it to advance their values. We need policy leaders in the United States to be able to do the same thing if we want to end up in a good spot. A lot of people use the early internet analogies. I, I was there. I was very involved in thinking about the open internet. And I think one of the challenges that, that I think we, we all run into as we engage with regulators, with policymakers and, and others is, you know, what we've seen emerge is financial and economic infrastructure that operates on public decentralized infrastructure that is not controlled by any corporation or not controlled by any government and it is, is global in scale and is frankly, it's, it's just based on a bunch of 
free open source code. And that's a hard thing for people to grapple with. How is it that we can actually have an economic system, a financial system, a property rights system, a governance system, all of these building blocks? How is it that we can have those, but yet there's no one in charge? And that is the beauty of the internet, obviously, is being able to construct these kinds of models. But I think from a policy perspective, I think there's a, you know, what I call the square peg round hole problem, which is, you know, this is how, say, capital market infrastructure has worked historically. So we got to slam this into that. Or this is how payment or banking infrastructure work. We're going to slam it into that. Or here's how intellectual property works. We're going to slam this into that. And I think getting folks across the line to say, okay, this is different. This is a different infrastructure paradigm. It's an internet native infrastructure paradigm, but we can make it work. I mean, what happened with communications infrastructure on the internet? No one thought we'd be using that to run society, but it's it's essentially the air we we breathe, uh, you know, today. You know, what are some of those kind of paradigmatic shifts? I know DAOs is a topic, for example, that I'm very passionate about. I think you're very passionate about. It's a hard thing for people to get their head wrapped around. But, you know, maybe talk through an example. That's a Web3 paradigm and, you know, how that could work, how that can function at population scale or at internet scale. Absolutely. And, and you bring up a really critical point, Jeremy, that I want to drill down on for just a moment. The core of our success as a nation and society and really civilization has been a belief in decentralization. So if you look at why we won the 20th century, it was because decentralized systems of decision-making and resource allocation were inherently more efficient than the centralized systems that we were competing against. So at one level, this sounds very novel, and yet this is deeply ingrained in our DNA. This is core to everything that we have accomplished as a, as a society. As we look out on the beautiful Washington, D.C. skyline, this is what got us here. And so for that reason, as we struggle with a variety of new challenges around the world, including a resurgent series of uh, competitors that model themselves on highly centralized systems, we should be thinking hard about how we can double down on decentralization. What does this look like in practice? So I'll take one example from our portfolio. We recently invested in a platform called Helium. Right now, if you want telecom services in the United States, you have a series of pretty limited centralized choices. You know, the flavors are either chocolate or vanilla, but they're, they're pretty uh, standardized. We are going to get to a place in the not distant future where individuals will be able to set up their own base stations. You'll have your own 5G network that you will be a part of along with your neighbors, and you'll be compensated as you provide bandwidth to those in your community. You'll benefit economically and will also be knit together in ways that I think have really powerful implications in a time of increasing isolation uh, where too many people feel detached and divorced from their communities. So we're heading in, in an exciting direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us you know, have witnessed how the internet as a whole has, you know, it's fostered globalization. It's fostered greater velocity of, of information, of collaboration, of trade, of commerce. These platforms like Amazon and Alibaba have, have made it possible for, you know, someone who's making a product some distant part of the world to actually reach a specific consumer in another part of the world. These incredible things that, that have happened. And yet, 
the nature of how one, you know, establishes a corporate form and how it can exist and enter into labor relationships and produce things is still this uh, labyrinth of all of these kind of corporate structures that, that exist around the world. And, and what we've seen and witnessed literally with in increasing scale and velocity over the past couple of years are essentially entirely software-based corporate forms where the actual entity is entirely managed on a blockchain. The ownership of the identity, the governance and voting of the identity, the treasury of that entity, the movement of value between that entity and the people who contribute work to it or what it produces or invests in. And that's all happened uncoordinated without any laws. <laughs> you know, so there is an application of law to DAO's kind of question here, but that has happened. And we've seen multi-billion dollar entities created. In fact, you know, there are entities that are, that are, have gener that are valued at, you know, 10, billion dollars and that are supporting, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions in them. So it's, it's extraordinary as a kind of laboratory for uh, new models of how coordination can happen over the internet. And so it's a live policy issue. Okay, well, Wyoming's got a DAO law. How do we ensure that these software-based, internet-native, new forms of entities can exist? And we should support that because in, in some ways, it's the next logical evolution of how corporate forms can exist. And I think uh, A16Z, I think, put out a, a set of principles on how to establish a legal framework around DAOs. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Absolutely. This is absolutely crucial for the, the reasons that you outlined, Jeremy. The Joint Stock Corporation, which is the foundation for much of the human collaboration that occurs on our planet today, is a very old framework. It dates to you know, 1852, 1862, and really has evolved remarkably little during that time period. DAOs, uh, as, as you said, are really the next stage in defining paradigms for how human beings can come together and collaborate to solve common challenges. We're seeing this uh, in real time play out this week, as uh, many of you likely know. Uh, there's an effort to use a DAO to purchase one of the 11 copies of the Constitution and make it available for public display. In the past, this would have taken months and months of planning, a big national media effort, an enormous amount of very expensive manual coordination to make it happen. In this case, somebody put the idea together, I think about four days ago, and they've already raised, last I heard, about $20 million, which uh, is anticipated to be uh, at the top end of the, the price estimates uh, for the Constitution. So we'll see how that plays out on Thursday. But it is exciting to see the potential to supercharge human collaboration utilizing these new tools. And legislation is going to be critical for doing that. I mean, this is the organization of work the organization of capital, the organization forms of governance, and we're, we're, we're literally going to build that as an infrastructure layer of the internet. And we should be embracing that, not running away from it or trying to litigate it into a corner. So it's fascinating. It's actually an interesting bridge into another really important topic, which I share the view that basically the joint stock corporation has sort of outlived its utility. And we have this labyrinth of, of ways in which corporate forms kind of establish themselves my company being one of those examples, but I live in that world. But the kind of joint stock corporation was also, it was a way to organize capital and it was a way for people to then have a, a tradable instrument. And that tradable instrument 
actually gave birth to modern banking and capital markets. And so there was this interplay between the joint stock corporation, these corporate forms, how capital was formed, then how value could be exchanged in support of that, and, and so on and so forth. And, and capital market functions were a hugely important part of, of growth in, in society. They still are massively important. But we're now seeing, similarly, capital market functions also moving to effectively, you know, entirely software-based forms on the internet. And this is, again, it's one of these, I think, topics which it kind of takes a, a leap to see it, which is it's now possible to take something like the exchange of value or time value exchange of, of value, borrow, lend, these other kind of primitives that make up the way that capital markets function. And those are now available as free software protocols on the internet that any individual or any entity any household, any firm, in theory, can interact with. And so that's a tricky thing, right? And so what do we do about DeFi is you know, sort of one of these topics. And the reality is it's going to continue to be built. And these are you know, market structures that are inherently global. So they, they don't fit cleanly into, well, it's this jurisdiction, it's this jurisdiction. They're public goods on the internet. And it is a challenge from a policy perspective. But at a high level you know, this is sort of DeFi as a category, and I'm going to anchor it back to uh, stablecoins, no pun intended, in a moment. But this is another one of those building blocks that's been made possible by this new operating system layer, these public blockchains. The one application is organizations. Another application is the coordination of capital. We're going to get on to content, intellectual property, and other things in a moment. But DeFi, vexing policy issue, if you're sitting, again, a member of Congress, how do you think about this? How do you protect it, evolve it, but also deal with the inherent risks? Well, the first thing to recognize is that all regulation, when done right, calibrates risk to use case. And there are certainly use cases in DeFi, there are use cases within the broader Web3 ecosystem that deserve regulation. Uh, and, and we need to recognize that there are some potential downsides if things are not done well. But the flip side of this is there is an extraordinary need and opportunity if these tools are utilized responsibly. In the United States, we have at least 20% of the population that is either unbanked or underbanked. That is in the richest country in the world with the most evolved financial infrastructure in the world. That's outrageous. Nobody should be satisfied with that status quo. And an even smaller percentage of that number has access to sophisticated financial instruments. So there are huge needs that are going unmet right now because individuals can't access the protocols that would enable them to use their capital more effectively. So ideally, Regulators and policymakers and lawmakers can weigh these two, recognize that there will be instances in which we need oversight, and, and we're very candid about that. Uh, we are not among those who think that uh, this can be a, a lawless realm. In fact, uh, Chris Dixon, one of our partners, describes blockchain as bringing the rule of law to the internet uh, because you're creating computers that can make commitments uh, in a way that we really struggle with previously. But we need to get to a point where we understand the extraordinary upside of getting this right and then work to manage the risks uh, associated with the downsides. I mean, I, I like to think about one of the things the internet's been amazing at is creating these incredible multi-sided markets that have enormous scale 
and what you know, Chris Anderson, former editor of Wired, called the long tail, right? The long tail of advertising, the long tail of of selling and making products, the long tail of content, and it's it's extraordinary because these multi sided markets can make it efficient even the smallest creator in the world to find an audience or a maker of a very, very niche product to find buyers on some completely different part of the, of the world. And even things that I think scream out risk have been able to build, you know, using the internet itself, in, in some ways self-governance. I mean, how many of us, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago would have thought it'd be a great idea to just get into a random stranger's car and, and drive around or pick up a random stranger and drive them around. Or how many people or thought... sleep it, at a random stranger's yeah, house. Sleep at a random stranger's house, right? You know, and, you know, in the early days, right, eBay, how the hell do I know that that beanie baby really is a beanie baby? But in all seriousness, you know, the internet has established ways for risk, for reputation, using communities, using applied AI to make these long-tail markets work. And so I, I have this idea that, you know, DeFi's natural outcome is long-tail capital markets. A landowner in a country could issue a token for the yield of their output of, their, of that and have that participate in a capital market, form capital, get liquidity, find financing, and have others who have capital that they don't need find those opportunities in a hyper-efficient way in the same way that we have these hyper-efficient other systems on the internet. That sounds like progress to me. That sounds like a better global capital market that can serve more people, more firms, more households. And I think you know the real challenge is because these are, these are vexing because they don't map cleanly to you got a registered broker dealer and a transfer agent and you got this and you have a settlement thing and you've got a, a national exchange and you have all these structures that exist to support risk management in the legacy financial system. These break the mold. And so do you believe that we need new definitions, new statutes, new interpretations of risk into statutes that step away from 80-year-old laws, that step away from you know, things that were designed for the highly country-specific paper-based universe? That's a loaded question. Well, we certainly need to start that conversation. And the reason we need to start that conversation is because so much of the innovation that's occurred in the digital space over the last 20 years has automated the work that goes on on the periphery. And it's been really challenging economically and otherwise for people who are on the periphery to deal with innovation. The incredible thing about the technologies we're describing today, and, and one of the reasons that policymakers should be extremely enthusiastic about this opportunity, is that, to, to paraphrase uh, Vitalik, this is technology that automates the center and it pushes opportunity out to periphery. So for the Uber driver, in your example a moment ago, this is a technology that doesn't automate the driving, it automates Uber. It pushes the trust out toward the center, out to the periphery, and it pushes the financial benefits out to the periphery. You could have a transportation coordination protocol on a blockchain where the users and the drivers govern it and get the economic benefit from it. And the platform itself is running natively on the internet. And there is no Uber. There's a protocol. And that's actually possible. And I can't wait to see it. So it's a fascinating example, you know, clearly. Maybe we can move into another topic, which is near and dear to my heart, which is stablecoins. Presidential Working Group report uh, emerged 
This is a, as I like to say, it's a live policy issue. And that's certainly been reflected in, in our conversations with uh, you know, agencies and, and staff members and others. I'd love to hear, I'm quite biased on this. I'm happy to share my views. Can't imagine why. Uh, but I'd be interested in your perspective. What do you think in this Web3 context of this infrastructure and this ecosystem and the building blocks that are there, what do stablecoins represent? And perhaps, you know, the, your three-step policy uh, advice. Well, you know, here for starters, uh, Jeremy, you have played an extraordinarily central role in kind of defining this landscape. And uh, I think it's it's critical to recognize that, and, and this is language I've, I've borrowed from you and I use it all over the place, stablecoins are digitally native money with a form factor that is superior to what we have had historically in a bunch of really, really important ways. And if you, you again, to go back to to Mark's experience creating the first internet browser, he's told me that he tried to figure out ways to move resources and value, and he couldn't. And stablecoins solve that problem. And they solve that problem really elegantly and efficiently and in ways that have the potential to unlock extraordinary value for society uh, over the coming decades. It is for that reason crucial that we get it right. And the presidential working group that has been engaged on these issues has made some recommendations, some of which uh, are intriguing and encouraging, and others uh, I think are uh, problematic and, and probably will need to be revisited. We think there are three core principles that folks should keep in mind as we approach the design and uh, deployment of a stablecoin regulatory framework. The first is that we need to keep financial inclusion at the forefront of our efforts. We need to recognize for all of the reasons that I outlined a moment ago that the status quo is neither desirable nor sustainable. And we have to come up with forms of financial architecture that are going to do a better job pushing opportunity to people who need it most. And we failed at that with the traditional banking sector for much of the last 40, 50, 60 years. The next thing we need to recognize is that as we work to push this opportunity out, it will be critical to have confidence in the underlying issuers of stablecoins. Circle, as a best practice, has for a very long time, I think think since 2018, you'll uh, correct me on the dates, been issuing regular attestations by Grant Thornton outlining what your assets are. So if I'm buying USDC, I know what's behind the USDC, and I can have confidence in that. That's a very good best practice, and we need to probably have a lot more organizations doing that. And you guys are are even up in the the game and providing greater transparency uh, into the underlying asset mix that supports USDC. So that's very valuable as well. We need to have a regulatory framework that gives consumers and issuers confidence that they're doing things by the book, and we don't have that today. The final thing we need to recognize is that going forward, some of the critical risks in this space will involve the actual operation of stablecoin networks. And so rather than fighting, to to use uh, your very good analogy, 80-year-old battles that were designed uh, for the time of telegraphs and, and horse and buggy, we need to be thinking about how we ensure that the underlying networks that are going to power stablecoin systems are up to par and functioning the way they need to. If we do that, we're going to end up in a really good place and create a lot of value for society and create a lot of opportunity for people that don't currently have access to the financial sector. I think the last point you made, I think, is it comes back to an earlier discussion that we had, which is 
I think conceptually, it's oftentimes hard for regulators and policymakers to understand that the actual operation of the 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 transactions and the settlement and the infrastructure that makes that possible, we're outsourcing it to the public internet. And that sounds scary at, at first blush, just like we're outsourcing communications for basically all of the world's activity to the public internet, to decentralized peer-to-peer protocols. We use that like the air we breathe. We don't think twice about it. Now and then you have an audio video issue on your Zoom. But overall, we really just we just assume that this is going to work. And I think that's a that's a leap, I think, for regulators. They're used to saying, well, if you're going to run a payment system, it's got to be tightly controlled by these narrow set of corporations, all locked down, etc. And outsourcing it to the public internet sounds really scary. But interestingly the beauty of public blockchains is they are very specifically designed to be the most resilient, the most secure, the most tamper-resistant infrastructure that the internet has ever seen. We have infrastructures like Ethereum and Bitcoin as well as, as relevant examples that have half a trillion to trillion dollar bounties on them that never go down, that have higher security and privacy assurances than anything in the financial system today, have settlement finality that's better than almost anything we have in the financial system today, and have been designed to be resilient from nation-state attack vectors. That sounds better than, than what we have. And so I think while on the one hand, it sounds scary to outsource it to the, to the public internet. That's exactly what we need to do if we want to step forward in this economic infrastructure. Absolutely. And if you look at both the finance sector and government, it's critical for all of us to recognize that we have a lot of institutions that were designed in the 19th century and are now using technology from the 20th century to try and solve 21st century problems. And for the most part, that's just not working out so well. So rather than blindly accept a status quo that everyone, if they take a step back, should acknowledge very freely is not delivering the way we need it to deliver, we should think long and hard about how we're going to utilize 21st century tools, 21st century innovation to solve these problems. And fortunately, we have some very, very powerful new instruments that we can bring to bear on these challenges, and they're working. You guys proved that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to move to another topic, and then I think we'll open it up for Q&A as well. But one of the, I think, really hot topics right now is the creator economy. You know, again, using the Web 2.0 analogy, the creator economy in the Web 2.0 world was essentially, you create and we, the platform operator, take. Uh, and we take the take rate, and we take the monetization, and we're seeing an inversion of that. It's a very powerful inversion. In fact, you know, I, I was there when blogging platforms were invented, when the first read-write web kind of emerged in Web 2.0. We were doing that in the video landscape at the time. And I think the ideas of, of Web 2.0 were about decentralization, enabling more participation, enabling creators to have a, a greater role. But what it ended up happening was these platforms emerged that centralized that and then monetized that in these different ways. But it sort of goes beyond that because now with non-fungible tokens, we've entered this world where essentially intellectual property and, and frankly, entitlements as a concept can now be represented in a, a digitally scarce manner. And that's a a huge breakthrough. Digital entitlements, 
digital intellectual property could unlock an enormous amount, not just for the creator economy, but for the, the very way in which firms relate to their customers or artists relate to their fans. And I think, again, we've got a situation where from a a regulatory and policy perspective, you've got folks saying, well, well, hold on a minute. Isn't all of this stuff just uh, might as well be traded on the NASDAQ, which is insane when you think about it. So this is a big theme I know for, for A16Z, the creator economy, what's happening there. You've made some major high-profile investments in the space. Maybe talk a little bit about your thesis and also, again, you know, where do we go in the policy arena to make sure that we allow that this kind of creativity and new, new modes of, of monetization to take place? Well, the historical analogs here are really powerful. Uh, and I think it's crucial for policymakers to understand the magnitude of the shift that is embodied in these technologies. If you look back on feudalism uh, you know, in the 11th century or the 12th century, Individuals would wake up every morning, they'd go out into the fields creating value that they would send up to the manor house, uh, and then they would literally get some crumbs back in return for their efforts, and everybody was more or less okay with that arrangement. That was just how the world worked. We live in a world today where each of us wakes up every morning, we start creating value the moment we turn on our devices, uh, we post, we create art. And virtually none of that value comes back to us as creators. And even if you're a full-time creator, you're getting crumbs. You're really getting crumbs. Instagram gives you nothing for all of the art that you create or post uh, to Instagram. They make a whole lot of money uh, off of that. I've been to their offices. They're really, really nice. And this isn't a knock on Instagram. It's just the way the system works right now. We have the opportunity to shift that dynamic. And in the same way that ideas of private property and individual autonomy very rapidly unwound a feudal system that had dominated many parts of the world for millennia, for centuries, we're seeing now with the advent of private property on the internet a way to do things differently, a way to give individuals a stake in the value that they create. And the beauty of NFTs is you can do this in two ways that really upend everything we thought we knew about the digital economy, the digital creator economy. The first is you don't need a lot of people to like your stuff in order to make a decent living. A very small handful of artists on Spotify receive the overwhelming share of the financial benefits from that platform, just the overwhelming share of the financial benefits. In a world where you have access to NFTs, you only need, by most estimates, a thousand true fans, and there have been some great pieces written on this, to sustain a pretty comfortable middle-class lifestyle. That is a game-changer for people who want to be creating art, who want to be creating music, who want to be bringing life and vitality to the world that we live in. So that's super exciting. The other piece of this is, if you are, for example, a visual artist, in the past, if you put a nice piece of art into the world and sold it at whatever price it uh, was at at the time, whatever it was worth at the time, no matter what happened to the value of that art in the future, you were kind of out of luck. You had one shot and that was the end of the story. Uh, and I, like many of you, have visited museums with priceless masterpieces that were originally sold by their artists for what at the time was a pittance and what today would be even less. 
NFTs enable artists to take a stake in residual sales, which is, again, a at one level, very simple innovation. At another level, it's an absolute game changer that enables individuals to take part in the creator economy in a way that would not have been possible prior to the advent of these tools. And connecting the dots here a little bit, you know, you're seeing DAOs that are formed to curate digital intellectual property. You're seeing uh, this digital intellectual property become tradable on global open markets of intellectual property, which is a profound thing that was never possible before. You're seeing financial infrastructure to be able to borrow on your intellectual property. You're seeing stable coins as a medium of exchange to enable these things. So a lot of these things complement each other, this kind of idea of composability. These are each building blocks that are on this these new public internet infrastructures. And we're just at the start. I think this is one of the things that we have to realize is that, you know, today, the number of projects that have matured, I mean, it seems like there's a gazillion that are happening every week, but we're in the early stages of this. I mean, the, the activity and most of the work is really just in the past couple of years. And so it's sort of like, you know, the birth of the web and everyone's building a website. And, and so this comes back, it's the heart of the policy issue, which is how do we let this flourish? How do we let the creativity of creators, not just IP creators, but entrepreneurs. And it's global, right? So this isn't just a United States issue. This is an everywhere issue. In every corner of every city, in every part of the world, there are people that are freely building on these blockchain networks in the same way that people freely connected to the internet. And then it got to a size that it was like, this is the new universe. Is that where we're headed? Is that how this you know, kind of gets to it? Or do we have to have you know, regulatory clarity? Do we have to have laws that are defined for this new world? Or are there degrees of freedom that we need to ensure stay in place to allow this to continue to flourish? Well, ideally, we start by deciding what we want to achieve. And we should have a vision for where we want to go. This is a set of opportunities and frankly, a set of challenges that is sufficiently large that it demands we have a vision for where we want to go. The countries that are doing this best have a clear vision for where we want to go. In the United States, we don't have that yet. So we need to begin a conversation about what we want our digital future to look like and how we want to use these tools going forward. I would suggest there are a few core elements that we should all be able to get together on as we shape that vision. We should be committed to greater security on the internet. We should be committed uh, to greater privacy on the internet. We should be committed to pushing out opportunity to those that have been left behind by prior waves of innovation. And we should be committed to reducing the power and the benefits that accrue to a small handful of middlemen that have taken a great deal of the spoils from the last era of digital innovation. Fortunately, we have a technology available that can do all of that. And in the process, it can replenish the reservoir of trust that irrigates everything we do. And it is a reservoir that has been sorely depleted in recent years and needs a recharge. So this is a very exciting moment if we can get the vision right and a regulatory framework that will enable that vision going forward. That is awesome. And on that note, I want to end our formal conversation and thank you to Micah for uh, a fabulous conversation tonight. Thank you. Yeah, so we are going to have some Q&A. 
which would be great. And Dante is going to pass the mic and we'll do our best uh, to do that for uh, 15 minutes or so. So any questions, raise your hand. Don't be shy. First one over here in the back row and then we'll come to you. Hi, Jeremy. Jennifer Schonberger with Yahoo Finance. It's great to see you again. I know we spoke a couple weeks ago. I know where you stand on the PWG's recommendations for regulating stable coins. You favor those. But today, Fed Governor Waller said that banks shouldn't be the only entities that are allowed to issue stable coins. Do you agree with that? Do we necessarily need bank-like regulations to regulate stable coins? I'll certainly take a crack at that. I think that you know, this is one of those things, maybe referring back to something Tamika said, which is is sort of how do we take a risk-based approach to thinking about this? You know, money transmission statutes in the United States are how legal regulated stablecoins work today. State banking rules, you have to be licensed, you have to have compliance programs, you have to, you know, have consumer protection uh, around the funds. So we have a framework and it exists today. I think the question is, you know, at a certain scale, is might that change? If you go from, you know, PayPal, which is probably the biggest money transmitter we can all think of, which has $35 billion of balances on its system, to something like USDC, which has $35 billion of balances that's grown fast, could be hundreds of billions of dollars. There may be reasons for a stablecoin issuer like Circle to have direct access to the Fed, to hold the reserves differently. It takes on a different scale and scope. But I, I agree with the view that there ought to be multiple paths for how stablecoins can come to market. It shouldn't be only federally regulated insured depository institutions. I think there can be multiple paths, and you see that around the world. So we are in the process, for example, of registering to become licensed under a regulatory framework in Singapore that will allow us to operate stablecoins out of Singapore. It's a very well thought out piece of legislation. It does not require us to become a bank. So I think in different parts of the world, you're seeing different approaches to this, and I don't think it's a a kind of unidimensional answer. Thank you for the question. We'll come here to the front row. Thank you. Good evening. Great uh, to hear from both of you. I'm Yaya Fanusi of the Center for a New American Security and also a consultant for Cryptocurrency AML Strategies. My question is, I'm wondering for either of you, if you could provide what is the one rule and which agency that you think is the biggest hindrance to Web3? Just because... And and not to single out, I don't know who's here. I'm not... (laughs) But no, but because, you know, obviously there are lots of different agencies, there are lots of different regulations, and I'm just trying to get a, and if you don't want to name, so okay, forget the agency, no, I, we're being recorded, we're not going to name the agency, obviously. The CIA. <laughs> there we go, there we go. Good thing I don't work for them anymore. Um, but what, the nature, maybe what, what sorts of, of regulations do you think are the would you want to prioritize to address? Yeah, yeah, you're going to get us in trouble here, I can tell. (laughs) Our chief regulatory officer, Jay Ramaswani, is here in the front row, and I'm uh, very tempted to defer to Jay for his brilliant insights on exactly uh, on on this one. Let me say two things on this, uh, which echoes a, a conversation that Jeremy and I were having right before we started. We in the United States right now, for much of our financial sector, are using regulatory frameworks that are 80, 90 years old. The world has changed a lot in that time. And the form factor of our assets, to again use Jeremy's language, has evolved pretty dramatically and in the last few years has evolved very profoundly. It is foolish to assume 
that a regulatory framework that was probably fit for purpose 80 or 90 years ago is going to be fit for purpose today. And so I would suggest that we need to begin by looking at the most dated elements of our uh, regulatory architecture in the United States and start thinking through how we design systems that are not imprisoned by legacy systems, but are instead fit for purpose in the 21st century. If we do that, we'll end up in a decent spot. I would add, you know, one specific kind of point of color on that, which is, I believe we need statutory definitions of digital assets. We need to define digital assets in statutes in the United States and recognize that there are digital assets that can, at one time, have characteristics of currencies, have characteristics of utilities and commodities, and have characteristics of securities. And that's not been possible ever, and now it is. And it's a way to organize capital, work, value, uh, usage, technology. It's a major innovation. It's a bigger innovation than the joint stock corporation. It's a very big deal. And we ought to think that through and not try and jam it into something that has existed and try and stovepipe everything based on what the world had been. I do think that there are, you know, I, I think this concept of principles-based, risk-based approaches is correct. There are people committing fraud. There are people conducting rug pulls. That's a technical jargon. Uh, you know, there are people manipulating other people. There are people taking risks with technology without really having that technology audited properly. There are really significant risks. Those are real, but they're distinct and they're specific to this. So let's try and think those through. And I think that can be done at an industry, self-organized level, and it can be done at a statutory level. But I don't think we need to rush to judgment. I, need to th I think we need to think that through carefully. I faintly heard a, can I get an amen over here? And so in, in the back, I have a question, Michael. Hi, Mike Pivovar from the Milken Institute. I'm a former commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission, so you were very smart not to call out any of the other agencies. So I can tell you're a former uh, diplomat, so great job. So I actually have a technical question for you. you. You spent a lot of time talking about the difference between sort of the original web and web three, right? So one of the things that, that made the original web so powerful and so unique was the fact that there was a common protocol. But web three is based on blockchains, Right? And there isn't a blockchain. There's a bunch of different blockchains. Does Web3 require everyone to like, figure out, like, we got to be on the same blockchain? Or can they, is there interoperability across blockchains? And are, what inning are we in this? Like, has Ethereum won the race on this? Or is there still a lot of innings to be played on this? I'll take this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of conceptual models and then these analogies are never perfect, right? So you say it's like the web, is it? I think... When I look at what these public blockchain networks are, I think about them as operating systems. And in fact, they provide many of the basic building blocks that operating systems provide. Data, storage, transactions, compute. They're really general purpose in nature. And increasingly, as you look at the second generation blockchains like Ethereum, third generations of blockchains, platforms like Solana or Avalanche or Cardano and, and others, they're really competing to be open, decentralized internet operating systems. And 
that's like the operating system competitions that we've had in the open internet. You know, uh, today we live in a world where if you want to create a piece of software that reaches the most people, you might create a web application, you might create an iOS application, an Android application, a Windows application. You're going to build that for multiple platforms. That isn't the, the end of the world. People do it. The most popular apps, like take the Netflix app. I think they've got like 75 different versions of the app for every smart device ever created. And so there are these operating systems. I think the question is, to your point, where are we? I think we're in an accelerating adoption phase. And I think the third generation of this is now really coming into production. And I think you're going to start to see network effects and power law curves to use internet platform you know, analogies that, that do develop. But I do think we're still somewhat early. And just like the early internet, yes, it had, it had HTML, a common protocol. There were a lot of competing ways to evolve that. And it did take standards and then kind of you know, various platforms winning the developer kind of hearts and minds. And so I think that will continue to be the case. And I think that's a good thing. We want this really powerful public infrastructure that's out there for the public good of everyone in the world. We want it to be intensely innovating. We want it to be something that's constantly advancing. I'd like to see blockchains that can support a million transactions per second in the next three years. I think we can realize that. They haven't been built. They're going to be built. And so we want that competition. We don't want to lock in and say, okay, this is the infrastructure you got to use if you want to make a payment over a blockchain. That would be insane from my perspective. It would be totally insane. So I think that's kind of where we are. Sorry, I just wanted to make one additional point on this because Jeremy is too polite to say it himself. That is why it's so critical to ensure that we have a vibrant, private, stablecoin marketplace beyond whatever CBDC infrastructure may evolve over time. Because the dynamism and the innovation and the interoperability is going to come out of private sector innovation. So there may at some point theoretically be a place for a central bank digital currency in the US or other countries, but it is absolutely crucial that we retain dynamism around private sector stablecoins unless we want to get locked into architecture that we may and inevitably will regret at some future time. I'm going to add one more thing, which is USDC is designed to be a protocol and it's designed to be a platform agnostic protocol. So it's a, it's a dollar on the internet protocol. It's a fiat on the internet protocol that runs across multiple blockchains because we don't want to be locked in because there is this innovation cycle and we want to see that play out. And it's sort of like if you're building a, a digital game, you want it to be cross-platform and have reach across all these different platforms. So if you want a digital dollar, you want it to be cross-platform and you want it to work across these environments. So, so we look at it that way. At some point, right, you'll see greater standardization, but it's going to be a, constant, a constantly evolving uh, innovation cycle, I think, for, for a very long time, just like the internet itself. Hi, Ashley Gunn from Coinbase. I wanted to follow up on the stablecoin question. Y'all have been talking a lot about it. I get the question a lot, and I'm curious, like, what your views are. Like, why would you use a stablecoin as opposed to just, like, hard cash? But then, like, following up on that, and I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget, you mentioned several times that crypto reaches the underbanked, which I think is fair and true. But at the end of the day, the underbanked have to have access to the internet or they have to have a, a mobile phone. And so... Like, and those people may not have that available. So how do you justify using the usage of stable coins as opposed to hard cash for this underbanked community when they may not have access 
or they may or may not have access to the internet. Yeah, I'm happy to take that. I think there are kind of two broader kind of questions there. I think the first is stable coins as a general form of digital cash-like utility that anyone with a, a mobile device could utilize. We are not quite there yet, but we are extraordinarily close. And so, and what I would say there is there's these generational evolutions in, in the technology itself. I like to use the metaphor that, you know, if you remember, you know, we went from dial-up internet to broadband internet. There was like the, the capital investment happened and then the pipes got wider and all of a sudden the utility value exploded. You could do so much more. It was a high fidelity experience. Costs dropped dramatically to move around data. It was a breakthrough. The third generation blockchains that are being launched, that have launched in the last year, that will continue to be launched, are like the broadband. And what that means is that you can have a digital wallet that is your own self-custody digital wallet, and it can transact at visa scale throughput, peer-to-peer or between you and a business, with the ability to have the funds settle between parties in 400 milliseconds, which is pretty good, and with a transaction cost that's about a 20th of a penny. And so it gets to a point where the utility is there, and so we're seeing a new generation of digital wallets that are being created to connect to this. And that's key. Once you have that, those can be put in the hands of you know, feature phone Android devices all around the world. Those can be put in the hands of really anyone. And you have the ability to then have that peer-to-peer value exchange with scalability, with cost efficiency. And so I think we are, as Circle, very focused on lighting that up. We're not in the business of reaching consumers. You guys are and many other firms around the world. And I think one of the things that we're, I think, really excited about is to see consumer scale internet companies lighting up these rails. And that's a very powerful thing. And I think that's what starts to enable that kind of reach. But it doesn't have to be bound to a specific corporate entity. Uh, I think a fundamental first principle of this is that like digital cash, an individual should be able to have a self-sovereign digital wallet and possess that and control that and exchange that. There are risk and compliance issues that have to be addressed with identity, which I think are, are, are being solved. But at the end of the day, you know, you can get down to that value proposition that you have with a, a type of cash transaction. That ties into, I think, your first question, which is, why would one use it? I mean, my view is that if you take the price stability of a dollar and you take and and you import the fundamental assuredness of a dollar and you essentially give it the form factor of digital currency, you now have dollars with superpowers. You have dollars that work at internet scale between any counterparty anywhere at the speed of the internet with that efficiency. That will unlock an incredible amount of value for individuals, households, firms. And then when you layer on the ability to intermediate those transactions with things like smart contracts, then all of a sudden from a a financial and commerce perspective, you start to unlock an enormous amount of value. And so what's interesting today is even with USDC, we see people using USDC to make micropayments for scarce digital intellectual property. And we see people settling $500 million trades between big institutional counterparties and everything in between. And so uh, I often get asked, what's the use case for USDC? My answer is, what's the use case for a dollar? And I think it's actually going to be more useful than a dollar because it's going to be an internet 
superpowered dollar. And I think we can't even begin to imagine all the uses, just like when messaging platforms emerged, email emerged, other things. It was hard for us to think about what a 1,000x increase in the velocity of content produced, a 10,000x increase in the amount of communications activity that happened in the world. We could not imagine that. But that's what happened when you commoditize the ability to communicate and exchange data. And so similarly, I don't think we can imagine yet the forms of economic activity that will happen when you commoditize the movement of value as well. Last question here in the back. Yes, John Burla of the Competitive Enterprise Institute Think Tank. Uh, thank you so much for having this forum. I think you both made a great case for uh, the atmosphere of permissionless uh, innovation that drove the internet and hopefully will be allowed to uh, drive crypto, blockchain, uh, LLCs, and DAOs. Um, uh, I mean, no, excuse me, NFTs and DAOs, but I was getting to that. I'm, I'm going to ask about LLCs in a, in a minute. Just wanted to clarify first, by DAO, you mean because it's not, I think, as familiar a term as, say, NFT outside the crypto world, decentralized autonomous organization, not the stock market index that's known as DAO. The other thing is that one of the things when you talk about a DAO replacing a limited liability, replacing the joint stock corporation is one of the advantages and one of the reason people gravitated toward that and why it's grown so much is because of the limited liability aspect that you're, if you're not a decision maker, you can be a part of it, you know, take the risk, but also make the gains, but you don't have the risk of being sued. Now, how is Dow or are Dow's going to replicate that? I mean, I understand in Wyoming, they're a form of, of LLCs, but do you, would you have the limited liability aspect uh, carry over from joint stock corporations? And if you don't, I don't, do you think it can, it can grow ever to be as, as, as big of a corporate form as the joint stock corporation? Wonderful question. For those interested in exploring the minutiae of this topic, I highly recommend our Web3 Policy Hub, uh, where you will find endless pages of information on uh, the details of Dow regulation. We have put forward a legislative proposal at the request of the Senate Banking Committee that specifically addresses some of the issues uh, you reference and suggests the creation of a new section within the IRS code that would be specifically applicable to Dow's. Uh, it would enable not only DAOs to pay taxes, which is important if they want to do a whole lot of things in society and, and exist as an entity if they so choose, but also address some of the liability questions that have emerged. And we think this process of regulatory engagement is going to be absolutely crucial. If you think about defining innovations of the 20th century, you had the aircraft, you had the automobile. In each instance, you had extraordinary breakthroughs technologically that were followed by investments in infrastructure and regulatory frameworks. That's where we are right now. We have had the breakthroughs. Jeremy has outlined the breakthroughs. He's been responsible for many of those breakthroughs technologically. Now we need the investment in infrastructure and regulatory frameworks. And what happens is once you get the investment in infrastructure and regulatory frameworks, that's when these innovations, the technologies, are able to reach population scale. That's when they're able to reach a lot of people who right now are on the outside looking in. I will quote the the great Dante Desparte, who told me many years ago that we will know we've won 
when we can stop talking about blockchain. And there's a lot of truth in that. We will reach a point where in the same way we don't obsess over TCP IP or HTTP now, these protocols are just operating in the background, powering large swaths of our lives and economy. We'll reach a point where all of this stuff takes place in the background. We have great confidence that it's going to work as intended and it unlocks a new renaissance of creativity. That's where we're headed, which is really exciting but it's dependent on getting the right policy and regulatory framework in place, which is why conversations like this are so important. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm, warm and big round of applause for Mike and Jeremy. Thank you both.